0: The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. As you are seated this morning, I encourage you to take a copy of God's Word and open it up to Matthew chapter 8. We, of course, did not plan for all of that distraction in the middle of that song, but what a great illustration it is. I'm just thinking, even as I was coming up here to the pulpit of All of the feedback in life that we get, all of the noise all week long that we get from the world that is around us that draws us away uh, from that which matters most, from that which ought to be our priority, God, His Word, obedience to Him. Uh, It's it's good, I hope, even to use that illustration there to remind you as we open God's Word that it is deserving of our attention, uh, that it is good to put off all the distractions, even the schedule for the rest of the week in just a moment, Uh, Turn our attention to God's Word for just a few moments that God gives us this morning. And ask God to speak to us through His Word this morning. I believe in preaching through the Word of God verse by verse. We have been for 36 Sundays now walking through the Gospel of Matthew, navigating our way to this chapter, Matthew chapter 8. But just to catch you up for a moment, remind you of what we have looked at so far. Uh, Two weeks ago, Pastor Justin concluded for us the last... Verses of chapter seven, which conclude Jesus's sermon on the mount, uh, a great teaching starting even at the beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby he described what his disciples will really be like. Uh, he mentioned even a righteousness that must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. A uh, righteousness, really, he's pointing out, that it is not of humanity. A righteousness that's of God by faith. Uh, he described the characteristics the. What his people will be like, what they will do, what they will not do. And we concluded with verse 28 of chapter 7, 28 and 29, that I want to draw your attention to really introducing chapter 8 this morning. Look back to verses 28 and 29 of of chapter 7. Matthew, it says, "...and it was so when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching." The, The people realized by the way Jesus spoke And by the insight that he gave, speaking forth not only the word of God based upon the Old Testament, but even he being the incarnate word, there was an authority, it says, a power in which he spoke, for he taught uh, taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes, that left the audience, the crowd that had gathered, astonished. They realized in that moment that Jesus was more than just your typical scribe or Pharisee. They even caught a glimpse in that moment that Jesus may even be more than just a great rabbi, a great human teacher, that he might actually be the Christ. He very well might actually be the Son of God incarnate. If you've been with us through the Gospel of Matthew, and if you stick with us as we continue through, what you will find is that Matthew is presenting over and over and over and over again to us that Jesus is more than just a human being. That he's more than just a man. That he is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised redeemer that the Old Testament points us to. He is the Son of God incarnate. He is the King of the Jews. You recall in chapter 1 where Matthew speaks of his birth. And he refers to so many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled even in his birth. and, And that he is... Uh, born of the Virgin Mary, that he was not simply of the seed of man and woman, but there was a a, a miraculous act of God whereby Christ comes into being. That he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. We see in his temptation even that as Adam, the first man, falls, there's something different about this man. There's something unique about this man. He overcomes Satan in the temptations, Matthew chapter 4, that were given to him. And his baptism that Pastor Charles just mentioned. After his baptism, something unique happened. A voice proclaimed from heaven, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. There was a proclamation even of his deity there, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And then we get to chapter 5, and we begin looking to the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as it even concluded there with the audience recognizing, he doesn't teach like a scribe or a Pharisee. He teaches with an authority that's of God and from God. Even as he expounded upon the Old Testament laws and principles, he did so in a way that brought a, a true understanding of what those meant and what those entailed in the life of a saint, in the life of the child of God. His teaching. Vindicated that he truly is the Christ. And now we begin chapter 1 of verse 8. And we see Matthew is wanting us to read chapter 8 in light of chapter 7 because he says when he had come down from the mountain, a great multitude followed him. When he had come down from the mountain, delivering the Sermon on the Mount, now, what chapter 8 is going to entail, well, we'll see a portion of it, read a portion of it this morning, look to the rest of it next week, what we're going to see follows the Sermon on the Mount is that Matthew groups together miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle the Lord Jesus Christ did. These miracles are not necessarily, they're not, listed chronologically. Read the Gospel of Mark and they come in a little bit of a different order because Matthew is not speaking chronologically here as we think of a chronological timeline. He, he is speaking and developing this theme with, with, with a, a, a theme emphasis, the theme of miracles the topic of miracles. And what he is doing, that I hope I can convince you of, that you come to see this morning, is he is showing that Jesus validated his words with his works. That Jesus, in a sense, authenticated all that he just taught by the miracles that he is then going to perform. That it's one thing to speak in a certain way and to reveal truth through words, But it is an entirely different thing, an even greater thing in one regard, to be able to perform truth and action. To, by the very works that he, he did, the miracles that were performed, he is validating and he is vindicating that he truly is the Christ. That he is the Messiah. That he's more than just a man. That he is God with us, Emmanuel. That he is, even still today, the Savior through whom all must go. Honest, as we read this these seventeen verses, first seventeen verses of this chapter this morning and looked at them. But it's simply to do as the the choir sang a moment ago, behold our God. To behold our God is revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about the greatest act of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial and resurrection, but this is prior to that, and all of this is building and culminating, foreshadowing evening, evening that, that, that greater act that is to come. We're going to look to these miracles, and instead of looking at just one individually and diving, diving into the depth and detail of, of each, we're going to take a sort of broader overview, and I want you to see what the entirety of these miracles together Matthew is trying to reveal to us. Matthew is trying to teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is, His character, and also about us, about our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 1. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, This Jesus. And behold, a leper came, one with leprosy. And this man worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing to be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers unto me. And I, I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all those who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. I want you to consider first with me this morning... The heart of Jesus. The heart of Christ as he was bombarded with the needs and the sicknesses and the sufferings and the ailments of humanity. The heart of Christ, of love and compassion and mercy. A heart that cares for those who are hurting. The leprosy is a pretty... Horrid disease, even in this day and age. Although, thank the Lord, we have a cure for it now. We understand it a bit more. In that day and age, uh, leprosy quite literally was a death sentence. Uh, leprosy, we know now, is a, an infectious bacterial disease that, that when that bacterial uh, bacteria takes takes a hold of a, a person, will slowly eat away, quite literally, the human flesh, the human body. Um, Literally, I won't go into all the details, but like fingers and body parts could fall off from the infection and other infections that would set in and a lack of of circulation of the blood from from your your hands and fingers and toes and feet. Vision was so often affected. It was a literal death sentence because it was incurable. There was no cure for it. It was a slow, torturous death, not only physically, but also socially. You, You were ostracized from the community if you were... Uh, to come down with leprosy. Uh, they knew it was contagious, and they uh, would expel a person who had leprosy from the community altogether. They would not be allowed in to normal day life at all. Uh, if they were fortunate, there might be a leper colony nearby where they could get together with others who had leprosy and have some sort of, of relationship with another human being, but they were literally to cry out if anybody came by, unclean, unclean, keep your distance, don't come near me, I'm, I'm a leper. I have Leprosy. Even the law of God would pronounce one unclean if they were to touch one who was a leper. Uh, It it, it was second only to touching a dead body as far as the defilement that would incur. So you can only imagine the crowd's reaction. (laughs) Think about it for a moment. Even in this room right now, in this day and age, think about it for a moment. If a person walked in that door with leprosy right now, even though you in your mind know there's a cure for it. Would you be walking up and shaking hands and welcoming and greeting that individual? I know many of you won't because I don't have leprosy. And I know when I go around to shake hands, some of you immediately are grabbing for your purse or your little bag that's got the hand sanitizer in it. And you don't like shaking a healthy person's hand, much less touching one who was a leper. Now you can only imagine in this day and age when it was such a literal and socially even death sentence, you you were pronounced dead even among the living while you were still alive, you can only imagine the fear that they would have of such a person. This man was not supposed to be in the middle of the crowd fighting his way up to Jesus, but he did. And we read that he fell down before the Lord. He worshipped the Lord and he, he cried out and he basically said, Lord, I know you can. Are you willing? If you're willing, you can heal me. Now, can you imagine the fear in the crowd and the people that, that were, were stepping back in horror that this leper had come into their midst? And what do we read about Jesus? What was his reaction in the midst of this moment? Verse 3. Then Jesus put out his hand and he touched him, saying, I am Jesus didn't step back in disgust. He didn't turn away and then speak a word to heal. He he reached forth forth his hand and he he touched the the skin of that person that was infected and and likely showing the visible signs. Uh, Luke, I believe it is, says he was full of leprosy. Like This wasn't that that he just got it. He was full of leprosy. and, And Jesus reaches out and he touches this man. There's a in that act a, a revelation of such kindness, of such compassion, of such care that Christ has for the hurting. He says, I am willing that Christ wasn't unconcerned for this man, that Christ wasn't busy about his father's business that did not entail his love for humanity. No, his father's business was the love of humanity. He, He had time for this man in spite of the fact that he was unimportant, in spite of the fact that he was ostracized from the community, in spite of the fact that a death sentence had been brought upon him by the sickness that he was enduring. Christ cared. Christ took the time. To stop and to hear this man. And this man had faith. He knew Christ was able. He says, Are you willing? And Jesus answers, I am willing. Be cleansed. The centurion. A centurion was a Roman soldier who was a captain over at least a hundred men or so. Okay, a century. You hear that word in centurion. He was a Roman, so he was a Gentile. If you know much about the Hebrews and their understanding of Gentiles by this day and age of Jesus Christ, they viewed, basically, if you were not of the seed of Abraham, literally, if you were not an ethnic Israelite, a Hebrew, then you were a a pagan who was hopeless, hopelessly lost, uh, defiled, contaminated just by your ethnicity even. And so they had many different laws and rules that they had built where you weren't to affiliate with a Gentile. You weren't to ever share a meal with a Gentile. You definitely weren't ever to go to the house of a Gentile. You would be defiled by such an act. The Gentiles were in a great way hated and despised, so much so that even the Romans accused the Jews of, of being a racist to a larger degree because they, they so separated themselves from anyone that was not a Jew. This man wasn't only a Gentile, but he was a Roman soldier. If you know anything about the day and age and the history of what's going on, the, the Jews are in bondage to the Romans. Now, the Roman Empire has conquered Palestine. Now, these people are paying heavy taxes. These people, though they're given a bit of freedom to govern themselves, it was a very limited government, that, that over them were the rulers of Rome along with the soldiers of Rome that would dictate law in everyday life. And so a Roman soldier... Uh, was often abusive, often uh, one in charge, one who was powerful. They were hated by the people. They were hated by the Jews. And it's a centurion that makes his way to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't turn a deaf ear to him. Jesus does not say, No, you're not of the seed of Abraham. I will not hear your request. No, what does Jesus do? This man comes and says, I've got to... I've got a servant of mine that is sick, and he's suffering, and he's asking for for Christ to heal him. And what is Jesus' immediate response there? It says in verse 7, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Jesus was going to go to his house, and Jesus was going to heal this centurion, this Gentile Roman official's servant. We see the heart of Christ in this. The heart of Christ for all people everywhere. Not just for Jew, but for Gentile. Not just for even those that aren't, those that are persecuted, but also for those who are the persecutors, as the soldiers of Rome often would be generally considered. Jesus didn't care about the cultural divide. Jesus cared for the centurion, and Jesus cared for the servant of the centurion. We go to verses 14 and 15. We find the heart of Christ seen even in His healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Now, I had my mother-in-law in the first service, so I couldn't make any jokes about my mother-in-law because she was here. But she's not here in the second service. No, no, we don't know if Peter was happy about this or not. But but Peter's mother-in-law was sick. And we don't know how sick she was. The Bible just says she had a fever. A fever in that day and age could mean death was impending. Think about all the diseases, all the sicknesses that fever can lead unto death, even in our day and age, far more so in that day and age. We don't know the severity of the sickness, but we know Christ was moved when he saw her. Um, Luke, I believe it is also, is the one that shares that they did request of him to come to her uh, aid, that but, but he saw her, Matthew says, and he reached out and he touched her hand and her fever left her. He had compassion on an elderly woman that culture would not deem very important, yet he did. And then we see in verse 16, the multitudes that came to him when evening had come. Now, how many of you like to be bothered in the evening? And You're not the Lord Jesus Christ living the schedule that he lived, the people that came. the If you ever deal with people in ministry or just in the world in service, you know people can be needy and meeting needs can wear you out. And Matthew intentionally records when evening had come, at a time when you're desiring to get away, when you're desiring to rest, what happens? They brought him at many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all those who were sick. He didn't turn them away. Even when he was weary from the day, from the busyness of all that he'd already done, he still solved the needs of hurting people And he had a heart of compassion to to meet the needs, to heal the needs, even to cast out the demons that were possessing those individuals that were brought to him. And then he concludes this portion of his writing with verse 17. Matthew does, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. That is a messianic, prophecy from Isaiah 53. The Messiah would be one who would act on the behalf of his people. In Isaiah's context, what it's really ultimately pointing to is that Jesus would be the suffering servant of the Lord. The Messiah would be. He would be the one who would bear the the punishment of the iniquities of God's people. By his wounds we will be healed. It's speaking of an eternal redemption of healing not merely from physical leprosy, but from spiritual leprosy. Leprosy all throughout the Bible represents sin that became, became a part of, of human existence. It plagues every one of us. The sin of Adam, even, that we're all born into. The sin that's an intricate part of this world now because it's fallen, because we are fallen. Jesus, ultimately, this prophecy is pointing to what Christ will do in the days that lie ahead of this moment, where he will climb a hill called Calvary and he will be nailed to a cross of wood and he will shed his blood for the redemption of sinners. He will become sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He will bear our infirmities and and our sicknesses and we shall be eternally healed through him. Matthew does something a little interesting with this prophecy that relates to that act of his death, burial, and resurrection, Matthew sees, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that even these miracles that he performs to heal physically ultimately foreshadow and point to that greater work that Christ will accomplish. But he says even in these acts of Jesus healing the leper, and of Jesus healing the centurion's servant, and as Jesus even removes the fever from Peter's mother-in-law, and as Jesus casts out the demons that were plaguing these individuals and causing these sicknesses, Matthew is saying he, he is evidencing his power, uh, his heart even to heal those who were under not only under sin but even the consequences of sin because all sickness and pain and suffering and even death itself come from sin or a consequence of the sin Now don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that if you're sick it's because of a specific sin in your life. that could be James says that that might be a possibility but but generally speaking, all that is broken and wrong in this world flows as a consequence of sin. Christ has come not only to conquer sin itself, but with conquering sin itself, all of the consequences of sin will be conquered as well. That's why we read Revelation 21, and it says all the former things will have passed away when that new kingdom comes, that eternal kingdom. No more suffering. They'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. It will be eternal bliss, eternal glory, eternal goodness. The heart of Christ for the hurting, heart of Christ for sinners is revealed in these miracles. here's the take home, the takeaway. If Jesus is willing to heal these, he is willing to heal you. That in these stories, we, we see the heart of Jesus, that it is a heart that is willing. It is a heart that cares when no one else seems to care. It's a heart that sees when others don't. It's a heart that touches and a heart that heals. The heart of Christ... For you. And if he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as Matthew is revealing him as he was then, so he is now even to you. And if he's willing to heal those who were the least among the day and age then, he, he's willing to heal even you. And we read that God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to. Read Ezekiel 33, 11, that God does not delight in the destruction of the sinner, but that the sinner repents and lives, finds forgiveness. That the heart of God is not to condemn and to destroy. It's not even to damn to hell as He will have to do for all those who don't repent, for all those who don't come the way of Christ. His heart doesn't rejoice in that though. His heart rejoices in forgiveness. His heart rejoices in in, in healing. That That is what even the parables that we'll get to will point to, that there's much rejoicing in the presence of the angels when one sinner repents. you know the heart of God for you this morning? you know the heart of Christ for you? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Christ is a God of love and compassion, of grace, of mercy delights in redemption, not in your destruction. The heart of Christ, notice secondly, the power of Christ, the power of Jesus. We'll quickly walk through this, but the the leper, verse 3, at the end of verse 3, it it says that after Jesus said, I am willing, um, be cleansed, and after he reached out his hand and touched this man, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Not a day later, not a week later, not a month later, but immediately. This was not some miracle that we have to explain away by naturalistic causes because this is enlightened man now reading and they were more mythical back then and they just didn't understand that Jesus had a special ointment and blah, blah, blah. That is baloney. That's foolishness what modern liberal Christianity tries to do to the miracles of the Bible. Jesus, the one who spoke all things into being. Jesus, the one who is the creator and sustainer of all the universe. Jesus, the one who will give his life a ransom to redeem all of creation and restore all of creation. He reached out his hand and he touched a leprous man. And the guy that had leprosy and was about to die was cleansed. It's called a miracle. And Matthew's point is not for us to come up with naturalistic ways of explaining this. It's for us to stand back and be astonished, just like they were about his teaching, that this isn't a normal man. This isn't you or me, any other human being. This is the Son of God incarnate. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah who has a power unlike any other. The centurion says he's a man of great authority, and he knew... Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. I say to this man, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does this. He says, Jesus, you can speak the word. I believe in the power of the word of Christ. You just merely say it, and it will be so. And Christ, without even going to the house, not reaching out his hand and touching the servant, but just saying the word heals the servant of the ailment. Jesus uses this, we'll talk to that, we'll uh, mention that in the next point, but Jesus uses this as a great prophetic image of what the church is going to be like even, where Gentiles will be more of the believers than even the Hebrews, the people of God. Peter's mother-in-law, verse 15, it says he touched her hand and the fever left her, and then she arose and served them. A point being made that it wasn't like she was still weak even from the sickness that she'd been going through. He fully restored her to health, to energy even, where she got up and began carrying about the work that was at hand. And the demon possessed that came, it says he cast out the spirits with a word. He didn't have to dance around and shout. He didn't have to hold this up and hold that out and pronounce this and pronounce that. No, with a word. And the demons obeyed his voice because he was the son of God incarnate. Jesus is able to heal these. Realize this morning, He is able to heal you. That's what we're meant to understand as we read this about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If He was able to do these things then, whatever it is that you're facing in life right now, you realize that Christ is able. That Christ is willing His heart. He's willing. Within His power, He's able. No matter what it is you're facing, it doesn't mean that he's going to do everything that you pray and ask him to do because we are, are so short-sighted and we don't understand the big picture. But it does mean Romans 8.28 is true, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. At the end of the day, what it means is we pray to him. We know he's a God who hears. He's a God who cares. He's a God who answers, even when it may not be like we think it ought to be. He's above us and beyond us. He's bigger than you and me. But by no means is He far off and distant and unconcerned. By no means is He incapable of performing that which He desires and and struggling to accomplish it. No, He is is God incarnate. The power of Christ. He can heal from afar, has power over fever, power over demons, power over leprosy, and He has power over whatever it is that you are going through. Heart of Jesus, the power of Jesus ultimately leads us to examine this third example as one that we're called to emulate, as a reflection of your heart and my heart, even now, the faith of the centurion. If you just look back over these 17 verses as we've just read through them and looked through them again, what you notice is. A lot of what Matthew does with these miracles is tells them in a very short fashion. He just mentions a few details and moves on to the next, to the next, to the next. One verse, really, of of Peter's mother-in-law. One verse of, you think about even verse 16, of all of these people that were demon-possessed and sick that came. They all had their own, own stories. It could have been shared, and Matthew doesn't mention any of that, and yet we get to the centurion, and and, in a large number of verses, a heavy portion of his writing in this section are taken up with his one story about the centurion, and he goes into a lot of details. There's a reasoning for that, primarily it's because Jesus emphasized this story so, so, uh, so well as he did. But even led of the Holy Spirit to record it as He did, He's doing it to make a point that we're supposed to be drawn to. This example set forth that Jesus marveled at. Warren Wearsby notes, Jesus only is said to have marveled at two things in the Bible. One is Mark 6, 6, where Jesus marvels at the disbelief of the Jews. The fact that they were given the prophets. They had the whole Old Testament. He did all of these miracles before them. He taught as He taught before them. And yet they just didn't get it as a whole. Like the Jews as a whole rejected Christ. He marveled at their disbelief, Mark 6, 6. But here, Matthew chapter 8, he marveled at the faith of one who shouldn't have believed. He was a Roman centurion. He was one who had prominence and power. He, he was one that could easily look down upon the Jews and think that they're, they're, they're nothing compared to the glory of what Rome is and the glory of being a Roman. He was one who was a pagan and could have worshipped all the pagan gods of Rome. And yet he is the one that Jesus says, I have not found a faith like his in all of Israel. His faith even exceeded that of the disciples, who we see over and over again. It took him a little while to catch on and really understand all that Jesus was and all that Jesus was doing. This man, this man who shouldn't have believed, was one who believed more mightily than any and all them. Jesus, as I said a minute ago, uses this as an illustration of really to, to mention a prophecy about what was going to happen in the future. He, he says, verse 11, that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the kingdom of heaven. That there would be a large number of Gentiles who would come to understand that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Savior of the world. He says there's going to be many from the east and the west all the way far enough to the east Or to the west. I don't know which direction it would be for that day and age because they didn't know we'd be over here on this little continent. But in Keystone Heights in the year 2023, there'd be a lot of Gentiles gathered together worshiping the one true God of the universe through His Son, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. Maybe there's one of, there's an ethnic Jew or two, maybe. I knew of one in the first service. I don't really know looking around. Maybe you are, but the likelihood is the vast majority of us gathered even this morning are ethnically Gentile. Okay? Even in Israel today, unfortunately, even with all this going on there, there's many that have, a, not even many in that day and age, in this day and age, that have a Old Testament faith in the Lord. Um, they, they need Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life for Jew and Gentile alike. And the Gospel is for Jew and Gentile alike. And I believe God is doing a work even with what's going on now in Israel that one day there will be a large turning of ethnic Israel to Christ. And they will come to see He truly is the Christ. He truly is the Messiah. But that's for a Wednesday night study on end Times. To get back to the subject here, Jesus makes this prophecy that, listen, the East and the West, the Gentiles are going to come in But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out in outer darkness. That primarily because of even the rejection of the Jews, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth and and make no qualms about it. It says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a reference to hell. That an ethnic Hebrew does not go to heaven simply because of their ethnic heritage. They need Christ. They need the redemption of the Messiah. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is a literal hell. There is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. All who don't know the way, all who don't know Christ, will go there. Back to this man's faith. Just three quick characteristics of this faith, and we'll close. This man's faith, first of all, was a selfless faith. He's coming to, he's coming to a Jew. He's coming to the one that is Jesus. One that people are beginning to recognize is is the Christ, the Messiah. But he, as a Roman official, is is doing a demeaning thing for a Roman to come to a Jew and request anything of a Jew. But he's going, and he's doing so not for his own accord, but for his servant's sake. Now we don't know all the backdrop to the story. We can speculate. Some think it's a, a a servant that he's actually come to know the true God. Uh, of Israel through maybe even a Jewish servant that he had and he 's learned of God and god 's word, and this this servant's fallen sick and he 's watching him suffer and, and so he 's going to 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 cry out to Christ to to bring healing to this one but he's no matter the circumstance, all that is speculation he 's acting selflessly in this faith, requesting of Christ for another. We see that this faith is a humble faith. Jesus says to him, all right, I'll go to your house. I'll, I'll go with you, and I'll heal him. And it's so interesting, this man's response. What does he say there? Let me read it verbatim. It says, The centurion, verse 8, answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. He, this man's a centurion. This man's a captain in the army of Rome. This man bosses everybody around because he has got the, the, the official title, the authority to do so. And he could have come to Christ and he could have said, I am a centurion of the Roman Empire. I command of you, come to my house. He could have said, you know, I am powerful and I am a prominent individual because of who I am. Come to my house and do as I have come claiming much of his much of his status much of his perhaps even wealth much of his power but he didn't come with any of that he came with a broken humility but even as Jesus says I will go he says Lord I am I am not worthy for you to even come into my house whether that was out of a care and concern for the societal pressures that that even Jesus would have faced as he did so, where they say it would have defiled him to to go into that house. We, We don't know the entirety of the reasoning, but we do know this man deemed himself so unworthy in comparison to the Son of God incarnate that he says, Lord, you don't need to even come into my house. I am unworthy of it. Just speak the word. I know what it is to have such authority where you say it and it's done. Just speak the word and it will be done. It was a humble faith. realize that an arrogant faith is a false faith. An arrogant faith is a false faith. Those sad verses we look to at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where where Jesus says that many will stand before the Lord someday and have to say, depart for I do not know you. And they'll say, but Lord, Lord, did we not? Did we not do all of these things for you? Didn't we go to church on a Sunday morning when the time changed and we were there singing even as the speakers went crazy? Lord, didn't we? Didn't I? You know, there's a hypothetical situation that's presented in evangelism often. If you were to stand before the Lord God and He were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I use that a lot to sort of get to the very heart. It does. It gets to the heart of where you think your standing is and why you think you have a standing before God Almighty. And I'll tell you one thing that causes great heartache in my heart and concern even in my mind as I'm discerning is a person really right and knows the Lord or not is when they begin with I. I. I have done my best. I have gone to church. I was a good good husband. I worked a job to provide for my family. I, I, I. As if we come to God because of us. As if we can come before Christ because of who we are and what we've done. The trickiest one of them all, I think, is the answer I've believed. That's a right answer. (laughs) It is by faith, but it's by grace. Our hearts are so tricky that some even get arrogant in their expression of faith that, well, I believe the gospel. I believed upon Christ. And that's not, I, I worry sometimes that even that answer might be given, but the heart has not bowed before Christ. The heart has actually risen up before Christ in arrogance that they have the spiritual intelligence to say, I chose and that person didn't. I'm here because I... No, 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 no. Please, I beg of you. If that ever happens that way, it won't because God knows the answer. He doesn't have to ask it. But if hypothetically God were to ask the answer, don't don't start with a personal pronoun. Me, myself, I, or we even corporately. There, there's only one answer. Christ. Why should I let you into heaven? If we're honest, we should say you really shouldn't. I'm a sinner deserving of hell. Even the best that I can present before you doesn't make up for the wrong. An arrogant pride is a false pride. The only real answer in that moment is Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Is your faith humble this morning? Don't let arrogance creep in. Don't don't think you're here... You'll stand before God someday because of who you are and what you've done. No, this man's faith was a humble faith. Lord, I am not even worthy for you to come into my house, but just speak the word and it will be so. It was lastly a confident faith. He knew who Christ was. He knew that all Christ had to do was say a word and it would be done. All Christ had to do was will it to be so and it would be so. This man's faith was greater than the disciples, greater than any in Israel. And here's the take home on this last point. If this centurion had such a faith in Jesus, so must you. If this man who was a Roman captain in the army of Rome, if this man believed in Jesus to such a degree, and knew that Jesus was willing and Jesus was able, as He did, how much more so shouldn't you and me? Christ is willing. Christ is able. You need faith. Not an arrogant faith, but a humble, selfless, confident faith. Christ is, that He is the Christ, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, that He is Savior, that He is Redeemer. Heavenly Father, we come and we do ask that You would work of Your grace and mercy in this moment as we come to an invitation. Lord, that You would draw us to Christ. Those who know Him, I pray that we would be renewed in our faith in Him know that He is willing and He is able, that He has a heart that is for us and a power to do all it, that He all that He desires He can accomplish. No matter what we're facing, we are to walk by faith, trusting, resting in You. Lord, especially if there'd be one in here that doesn't know You as Lord and Savior, one who's never turned to You and repented and believed upon Christ, I pray even now at this invitation during the song to do so, they would come to realize they